Last week, we looked at verses 9 through 17 of Colossians 1, and really what we focused on was a pattern of prayer set forward by the apostle writing this epistle. The way that he prays for the church at Colossae is kind of a, a, a blueprint for how Christians might pray for one another. So we saw first, <clears throat> we should pray for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding for each other. The value of right thinking cannot be overestimated, especially in the day and age uh, which we live in, which I'm sure pastors have been saying every sermon every year for as long as churches have been in existence, but it doesn't make it less true. Uh, we live in, a, in a, a society that doesn't think. And so we should note the importance of emotions and value the heart experience. Um, but, but we should understand that feelings need to be controlled by and led by the intellect rather than the other way around. Um, we saw, secondly, that right thinking leads to right conduct. Um, Paul prays that the Colossians will walk in a manner worthy of Jesus, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What I did was took a lengthy side road to, to admonish parents who are training children that we need to train our children to reason things through. If Paul prays for the church's intellect and then for their walk, it stands to reason that, that well, and for their walk and that from there they bear fruit. And then he prays again for their minds. It stands to reason that, that there's something of a pattern there for the church, and then it, th that would make sense. That translates then to those of us, those of you rather, who have small children, and then those of us who have large children. There's, there's, don't overlook this. We, we find it so much easier to, to rebuke and, and to take a corrective posture over bad behavior as parents, we're, we're like constantly reacting to bad behavior instead of diligently, faithfully, carefully, lovingly, graciously teaching them, here's the right way to do it. Here's the right way to think about it. Um, while still giving them the freedom and the space to explore and learn and experience, Right? And I didn't address that at all, but it just came to me. <clears throat> There's a pitfall in, in being preoccupied with instructing your children and, and uh, hovering over them and uh, restricting them from, from thinking for themselves and living and trying things. I mean, either, either way, it kind of ends up in disaster. But my point was, if, if we want our children to bear good fruit and increase in good work and walk in a manner worthy of Jesus, we have to teach them the value of that, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We saw a third that while it's one thing to know what the right thing is to do and it's another thing to do what the right thing is to do, it's another thing still to keep on doing what's right. How many of us have taken the first few steps on the path of obedience and then gotten discouraged or gotten distracted or gotten frustrated? So there's perseverance. There's a perseverance piece 
to walking in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ that we shouldn't take for granted. Look, it's not going to come naturally. It's not just going to take effort to get going. It takes effort to keep going. So then we got to pray for one another and we got to pray for our wives and husbands and children that we would keep on going in doing what's right. He also prays, interestingly, for their patience and for their joy. Uh, It's impossible to persevere in doing the right thing if you don't find any enjoyment in it. Let me say that again, because it's not just a throwaway hyperbolic statement. It is impossible to persevere in doing the right thing if you don't find any joy in it. This is why Cinderella is hard to watch, right? There's this period of time in that story where Cinderella is doing the right thing and all she's getting is grief for it. How do you find joy in the midst of doing the right thing and only getting, seemingly only getting grief in return? Parents take a lesson. If God incentivizes us to be obedient by the offering of blessing, if God says, hey, if you will do this thing that's good for you and will help you to flourish, you'll also receive the blessing and the comfort of my approval and then there are practical things that he offers as blessing for doing the right thing, right? The if this, then that spread all throughout scripture, which are not necessarily like a prescription that we take and turn into God because everything that we do is of grace and not of works that no man should boast, but there is incentive there. So then shouldn't we with our own kids be like, hey, if you'll buckle down and do this right thing, here's a reward I'll give you at the end. It's amazing to me that Christian parents of all parents are the ones most guilty of going because I said so. All right, fair enough, because you said so. But let me tell you how that's going to look when she's 18, 19, 20. And it's not pretty. And people are baffled that their teenagers want nothing to do with them. Well, you've run a because I said so situation right into the ground. Inspire them, incentivize them, encourage them. Give them joy in doing what's right. Or they're going to go buck wild as soon as the shackles of authority are removed. Um, Fourth, we saw that Paul is thankful that God the Father qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints uh, in light, which in simplest terms means that God, God makes us enough. That's what it means to qualify. God makes us enough to share in his family, to partake in the inheritance. Um, The temptation for a lot of faith prosperity type preachers, name it and claim it types would be to stop there and go, you're enough. And then make it this self-esteem thing. But brilliantly, Paul doesn't allow for that. You need only go to the very next part wherein he describes the means by which the father does this. And it is not by some genetic mutation in you or some uh, putting aside of his own righteous judgment that he qualifies us. He qualifies us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how he makes us enough. Um, 
And so in verses 15 through 23, Paul gives a beautiful doxology about Jesus. And due to the constraints of time, we only made it through verse 17. We're about halfway through, although notably Lee did point out that I bloviated for 84 minutes. So perhaps the constraints of time aren't to blame here. Um, here's what we did cover. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Which means that Jesus, the person, was present and involved in the entire creation process. That it was impossible for creation to happen without Jesus the person. And that all things are sustained by and held together by him. And that brings us to 18a. So this is Colossians 1, 18, just the first part. <clears throat> he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, to begin with, we have to mark this theological truth. Christ is the head of the church. Church, uh, I mean, I think most people of you said, hey, what, what does ecclesia mean? Which is the Greek from which we get the church in the New Testament. For the most part, that's the word that's used. They would say uh, something like a, a gathering and assembly, Right. Fair enough, in technical terms. Contextually, there's another piece to that word because it's kind of a compound word. The, the together, the assembly part, most people get. Um, and, and then, so you could use this word, ecclesia, in the abstract to apply to anything that happens in this auditorium any day of the week, right? It's an assembly. It's people getting together. The part that people miss from this word is this part that means those called out. So it's those called out, out of death, out of sin, out of darkness, and gathered together. Those called out together are the church, those named, which is exciting if you sort of suspect that you heard the gospel invitation by accident. Those called by name, Mark, uh, or sorry, John 10, 3, when Jesus is going through his whole, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, um, uh, speech, he says, to him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So the word ecclesia contextually means a gathering of people who have been called by name. And Christ is the head of that gathering of people who've been called by name. The reason we know it's a gathering and not a bunch of uh, people living in isolation in pause is because that would be idiotic, right? I've called you out of darkness into my marvelous light by yourself? No. Oh, strewn throughout the entire scriptures are these indications of and allusions to the fact that there is a people together, a people of God. The church is the congregation universal expressed in the congregation locally. So this is Springfield's Baptist Church. We belong to the community of Springfield. We're made up by the community of Springfield and Bellevue and Omaha and Papillion and Plattsmith. Like, but this, 
We're, that's what, we're just this little expression of a much bigger thing that Jesus is the head of. It's a bundle of believers who assemble themselves in one place to magnify the head of the church. Amen? All right. It's a bunch of people whose lives have been recovered from death and hell, worshiping the one who redeemed them. Amen? You're not sure? Well, it's important. We got to agree to that because the next thing I'm going to say, you're going to wish you'd agreed to the previous thing so that you could really agree with this part. All right. So I'm going to give you another shot. We are a bunch of people whose lives have been recovered from death and hell, worshiping the one who redeemed us. Yeah. And Christ is not the pastor. Christ is the head, not the pastor. Christ is the head, not the pastor. Right. Christ, not the board, is the head of the church. Yeah. Christ, not the critic, is the head of the church. Lest those of you who think you are uh, exercising your discernment by identifying everything that's wrong with the church think that that puts you at the head of it. It doesn't. Christ, not you, whoever you are, me included, is the head. Christ, he's the authority, the governor, the king, the one in control. He's the good shepherd. He's the beginning and the end. None of us are those things. We're the hands and the feet and the liver and the spleen and the pancreas, the fingernails, the, like the belly button. Like we're the parts of the body. He's the head. And so second point. First point being Christ, not the pastor or anybody else, is the head of the church. Second point. <laughs> what benefit would it be and, and what a blessing to local churches everywhere if men who call themselves pastor would stop and consider the implications of that reality? That Christ and not they are the head of the church. In Jeremiah 5.31, God tells Jeremiah, and Jeremiah will repeat this, the prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule on their own authority. My people love to have it so. You ever look at churches where you're like, man, there's a lot of dysfunction there. And I'm not sure that guy even knows the gospel that gets up and preaches every morning. Why are there 3,000 people in the congregation? Same reason there were in Jeremiah's day. The priests rule on their own authority and my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? So men who fill pulpits yet don't recognize that Jesus is the head of the church do little, if anything, to prepare the church for the end that's coming. I suspect it's because they're more concerned about being compensated than the condition of any one soul. But I'm just guessing. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Uh, real quick, let me ask you all a question. Feel free to answer this out loud. I bet none of us actually has ever seen, well, there's a few of you that have probably seen, but are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Oh, okay. Are figs gathered from thistles? So we look at a man's fruit, not his bookshelf, to decide if he should be our pastor. We look at his family, not just his education, 
to decide if he should be a pastor. We should examine his life, not just his liturgy. Amen? You'll know them by their fruits. I bring this up because the first thing which comes to mind when I consider that Jesus is the head of the body is that if I stand, if I stand before you delivering sermons which do not accurately depict him, if I say things about him, about the gospel or the scriptures which aren't precisely correct, if I say things about myself or you or all of us together which are not true and consistent with what he has said, if I misrepresent Jesus to his people or fail to spend enough time portraying him to you or I fill the hour with personal anecdotes that have almost nothing to do with him, what does the head of the church think? Think about that. What does the Father in heaven who said, this is my beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased, think of the pastor who stands in front of a congregation and paints himself in the best light possible so that you'll all be impressed with me rather than Jesus. What does God think about that? And we wonder, why is that church full? Well, because the people love to have it so. Because when you want to make much of yourself, what better way to do it than have a pastor who shows you how? Christ is the head of the church. What does he think? Third, what does the head of the church think of people who love Jesus but not the church? You've run into these more and more, haven't we? So I would say a decade or so ago, this disassociation deconstruction movement really started to get legs. This is where I find something that I like in the world that the Bible clearly prohibits, and so I deconstruct from the faith. I decide that, well, I like elements of what's in the scripture. I like elements of what's in the gospel. I like Jesus, but I don't like that God that's in the Old Testament, so I'm deconstructing. Well, what does the head of the church think about that? What does the head of the church think about us not being in the mood for gathering with the body? What does the head of the church think when we can consistently be too busy with other pursuits for worshiping him? Look, it's not me that you're indifferent to. I'm not the head of the church. Why does that take the pressure off? If the head of the church gathers us together and you couldn't make it, if the head of the church gathers us together and the teacher talks about politics or himself or money, if the head of the church gathers us together and these things happen, what does the head of the church think of that? He's the head of the church. All right, second half of 18. And I think that's as hard as I've ever gone in trying to make you feel bad about not coming to church, right? So, but it's, I believe it's in the text, so it had to be said. He's the beginning, 18, second half of 18. <clears throat> the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. So we saw this term firstborn. We saw this once already in verse 15. The idea then, as now, being that Jesus owns the inheritance, owns the possessions of the Father. Here it's even more important that we understand what's meant by firstborn because he doesn't mean born in the sense that Jesus was created. He wasn't. Jesus wasn't created. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus was not even the first to be resurrected, right? I mean, he was raising people from the dead while he was still on the earth, so he wasn't the first to be resurrected. Others preceded him in being brought to life after dying. But Jesus was the first to be resurrected in bodily form and not die again. In fact, he's the only one so far to be resurrected in body and not die again. And of all who were and will yet be brought back to life, he is the superior. Amen? Okay. All others will be resurrected by him. He was resurrected by the power of his own righteousness. I'm going to need an assist. He didn't. Death couldn't hold him because he was too good. Praise God. Indeed, in everything he is preeminent. 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So, oh, this is a big mouthful, right? And, and I've said, I say things like this. I say things that are biblically, I believe, biblically true. I just kind of spit them out in the middle of a sermon uh, months ago when they come to me. And I don't ever take you and back up statements like this. But I've said this before, and now you get to see the backup. Don't you take that baby out of here. You let it, I'll hold it. You let it scream. You do whatever. We don't care, right? We want that baby in here. Okay. Uh, I said, if you want to know what God is like, Look at Jesus Christ, if you want to know. And, and I've said things like, I know we have this picture of God as kind of being different. Like in the Old Testament, he's mad, angry, stomping around, setting stuff on fire. And then in the New Testament, he loves the little children and he's sweet and, you know, prances around sprinkling love dust on everybody. And, and we're a bit confused about which one is which. But the reality is, if you want to know who God is, you look at the whole person of Jesus Christ and all that he did and all that he said. We don't bless God. We don't worship an unknown God, but one who has made himself known by wrapping himself in flesh, emptying himself of all glory in heaven and coming down into the mess with us. Jesus is not part God. You ready? Are you ready? In, in theology, we call this the hypostatic union. I know that off the top of my head. Didn't have to look it up. Haven't been to seminary. Right? We call it the hypostatic union uh, because Jesus has two complete natures. The full nature of God the Father, the full nature of a human man. He has them both. In Hebrews 1.3 um, the writer of Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature in a human. 
What the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches is that these two natures are united in one person, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not two persons. He doesn't have two personalities. He's one person. The hypostatic union is the joining, however mysterious, of those two divine and human characters, characteristics into one, those two persons into one. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, for it pleased God for all of himself to dwell within Christ. The fullness means all of him to dwell in Christ. All right, so... uh, What's going on in the Old Testament passages where we see wrath and judgment almost without mercy from a human perspective? What is going on that drives some people to want to like be more gracious and more forgiving and more compassionate than the way God is portrayed in the Old Testament? What are we supposed to make of this disparity between the character of God that we see in the Old Testament and the character of God that we see in the New? Here's what I think, plain and simple. Which is a clearer revelation of the character of God? God in heaven, God in smoke, God in a pillar of fire, God in the holy of holies in the temple separated by a curtain, or God in the flesh walking and talking with us? Which one is clearer? So I would say Jesus clarifies whatever I'm confused about when I look at God in the Old Testament. That's how we ought to view him. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I told you when I introduced Colossians and we refreshed our gospel fluency that the result of sin was that everything was broken. Nothing works quite the way that it's supposed to. All of creation, according to Romans 8, was subjected to futility. So let's illustrate this. Prior to sin, Adam and Eve, along with all creatures, uh, fish to the birds, everything in between, ate plants. I'm not making that up. That's that's in the beginning of the Bible. Uh, After the fall, something happens that had never happened before. So pre-fall, you've got Adam and Eve in the garden uh, uh, bringing the earth into subjection, naming the animals, um, uh, tending the garden, uh, tending the animals that were in their purview, in the immediate vicinity, right? They weren't, because they weren't uh, omnipresent, they were finite. And the thing that that happened was when anything got hungry, it went and found something green or yellow or orange or whatever growing out of the ground and ate it and was satisfied. Then Adam and Eve sin and they transgress the will of God and they do what's destructive and damaging to them. And judgment comes like a thunderclap, the curse. The next thing that happens after God gets done pronouncing the curse is right in front of Adam and Eve, I'm assuming, 
he seizes some animal by its head and kills it, strips the skin off of it, and makes something to cover Adam and Eve's shame, their nakedness. Because to cover shame, something had to die. That had to have made the curse seem awfully real to Adam and Eve, who had never seen death before. Now, there are those who would disagree with me, who believe that the fossil record and radiocarbon dating are proof that animal death has been happening for longer than 6,000 years. The consequence being, since they believe animal death existed before the fall, they have to limit the application of the curse. Did, I, did you all detach? Were you all like, you're still with me? What I'm saying is, I believe the Bible when it says nothing died until sin happened. After sin happened, the first thing that died was a sacrificial animal. Okay? There are those who would claim to be Christians who would believe in an old earth and want to incorporate evolution with creation. Say God used evolution to create because the fossil record is undeniable. Radiocarbon dating is accurate. Um, we can, and what that is, is basically we can detect how old something is by how much the, the radioactive, is it isotopes, have decayed in, in carbon-based uh, uh, fossils. Right? So anything that used to eat plants or eat something that ate plants has these, uh, these radioactive isotopes in the radioactive carbon in them. And as it decays at an exact, at a precise rate of 5,720 years or something like that, because it decays at a precise rate, they can measure the number of these radioactive uh, isotopes in these fossils and determine, therefore, when it died. The problem with that is, and this is kids, what they don't tell you in school, is in diamonds, which predate the fossil record, there's radioactive carbon. So, like, it, the whole thing falls apart pretty easily, or at least teeters on the edge of reasonability. Also, fascinatingly, the number that I just gave you, it now occurs to me, 5,700 some odd years is how long it takes for that isotope to fall off or to decay. It's about how old the earth is. I'm just throwing it out there. Stay with me. This matters. If you believe that animal death existed before the fall, you cannot apply the curse to the fall because it means death was already happening before the curse. Right? So I'm saying to deny that Paul is talking about the whole created order in Romans 8 is to ascribe everything that's wrong with earth to man's abuses rather than the consequence of the fall. Now, this gives rise to this whole idea of the noble savage. And if we could just go back to living in harmony with the earth, the earth would be fine. We're the only problem. There's a measure of truth to that. We caused the problem, but the problem is unfixable by us. So it doesn't matter how many blueberries or how much spinach you eat, you could still get cancer and die, right? There's no cure for the fall. Stay with me. This matters. What needed to be reconciled to God on the earth or in the vaulted expanse of the sky if the curse resulted from sin only applied to mankind? Were we flying around up there when Paul wrote Romans 8? 
No, I don't think so. If he meant only people, why did he say people everywhere groan waiting for the revelation of the sons of God? Why did he say in Romans 8, 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It seems like he might be including more than just mankind there, right? So here's the point if you've lasted this long. <clears throat> Through his redemptive work, <clears throat> Excuse me. Through his redemptive work, Jesus is going to bring peace where there historically has been chaos, warfare, violence, and bloodshed. What that looks like, according to Isaiah 6, and if you're an animal lover, like this has to be one of your favorite memory verses, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Ah, oh, that's hyperbole. Oh, that's just uh, metaphoric language. Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. So we're going back to the way things were supposed to be. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, what that means, because we're so used, like I love steak and peace. I'm not changing, right? There must be something delicious that grows from a tree in glory. Or I'll be sneaking off like, where's James? Uh, <clears throat> we can hardly comprehend how damaged everything is because of sin. We're just used to it. And, and most damaged of all is us. For rather than forsake the cause of our curse, we pursue it with an unslakable thirst. Already we're abiding under the curse and the consequences of it. Already doomed by an inherited nature. All people everywhere add to the curse their own personal touch by adding their own sin. So our passage says for, in verse 19, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Understand, brothers and sisters, our sin, our curse was not easily dealt with. All fullness dwells in him and it pleased the Father that it should do so, not only a fullness of abundance for himself, but for us. A fullness of merit and righteousness, of strength and grace. What does the head do? Everything. To prove it, cut the head off of anything, and what happens to it? It doesn't function like it's supposed to. In, all right, so as the head is the faculty and the source of all the function, every function of the body, so Christ is the faculty and source of all graces to his people. It pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell in him and that we may have free access to him for all the grace that we need. It pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell in him and that we would have free access to him for all the grace that we should need. 
He not only intercedes for us, but is the trustee of grace in whose hands it has been given to lavish on us. God held back nothing of the grace needed for his people. He didn't hold back a little bit for himself. So of his fullness, of his fullness, we received grace upon grace, John 1.16. And he fills all in all, Ephesians 1.23. How is it that we have such grace? The blood of the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt the blood of the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt was spilled to cleanse the sins of those who cry out for salvation. The blood of Jesus, fully God, fully man, was spilled to redeem and reconcile the ones who spilled it because it pleased him. Verse 21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, <coughs> excuse me, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So 13 months ago, we're looking at Galatians 1, 11 through 17, where Paul says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. And I told you it was March of 2022. I said, it's important that you have a former life. You got to have a testimony, right? Which declares I once was lost and now I'm found. And I talked about that importance uh, probably ad nauseum. Did you used to be hostile in mind toward God? Did you used to be engaged in evil deeds? Did you used to be alienated? Have you now been reconciled through the death of Jesus Christ? Are you now looking forward to one day being presented holy and blameless on the day of judgment? Because if you don't have a former life, then all you have is the terrifying expectation of judgment. Those are the options. To reject the blood of Jesus Christ and say, nah, I don't need a former life. I'm good with my life. To reject the offer of salvation is to reject the most precious gift which was ever offered. There was such value in the blood of Christ that on account of his shedding it, God is willing to deal with men and women and boys and girls who are sinners and to bring them in new terms under a covenant of grace. That's how valuable that blood was that was spilled. And for his sake, to consider them in view of his death upon the cross and to pardon, to accept, and to favor us because of the value of that blood. To reject the offer, whatever your reason, whatever your reason is to reject the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. So if you don't like the Old Testament version, all right, and I'm, I'm being sarcastic and I shouldn't be, but if you don't like the Old Testament version of God, let me just assure you what you see there is a pale comparison to what you will see on Judgment Day having rejected the gospel. For the rest of us, 
who, who look forward to, and I know it's hard to believe, amen, but we look forward to being presented holy and blameless. Like we're, we're like, I mean, he said it's going to happen. Paul includes an admonition for us. If indeed, I'm almost done. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So I've seen what happens. And so have many of you. I've seen what happens when somebody shifts away from the hope of the gospel. This is not a decision made all at once. It is a drifting, a shifting, a wandering, a stumbling. And I've seen it wearing many disguises. But under the mask, behind the lies and beneath the costume, shifting away from the gospel always has the same motive behind it. I want something I think God doesn't want me to have. So we begin to drift. And the word here for shift... Shifting in Colossians 1 is metakineo. It translates to stir to a place elsewhere. Very poetic. To stir to a place elsewhere. It's a restlessness. It's, a, it's the little adjustment you make when you're nervous. It's the sharp breath that you take when you see something bad for you that's also a delight to the eyes. It's the subtle change in thinking when someone points out that it won't actually kill you, not right away. It's not one giant leap to the tree. It's a shuffle of the feet inch by inch while you consider what the serpent is saying. It's the tilting of the head to look at the fruit from a different angle. It's the reaching up to touch it to see if it feels safe to eat. You don't wake up today planning to seize the fruit and consume it, but here we are standing in front of it with a hand on it, and little by little, the one who once claimed to believe God proves that they do not. So I've seen them, folks who said they love Jesus, but they hate his church. Yeah, folks who said they believe the gospel, but strip it of every binding moral charge. Folks who said they love God, but they reject his commandments. They didn't get there overnight. They shifted. They were stirred to another place. It's the turning of your head towards the fruit that eventually turns your shoulders and then your hips and then your feet. How do we keep from shifting? How do we remain stable and steadfast? I think there's three questions you can ask yourself that might help when you're facing temptation. Question number one. <clears throat> if God freely gave the fullness of himself so that we can be reconciled, what is he now going to withhold if it's good for you? Two. Did you notice what Paul said uh, the shifting is away from. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. So what are we shifting from? The hope of the gospel. So whatever the temptation, whatever the snare, we should ask this question, okay? Why for that, whatever it is, why should I give up hope? Like I have hope. Why am I going to trade that in for a moment of passing pleasure? 
Sin makes hopelessness. That's what it does. So even if I'm not saying if you sin, you get kicked out of the, the, the fold of faith. But we all know this. When I sin and then some nonsense happens to me out in the world that was probably going to happen anyway. Now I've given up the comfort of knowing that I am a child of God, well-pleasing to him because I'm in this weird hangover place where I've done something evil and I haven't gone to talk to God about it yet. So I've lost the comfort of being his child. Why give up hope? Third question, do I believe Jesus gave up his life to do away with what God has said? Or do I believe that Jesus gave up his life to establish and fulfill what God has said? Remember, licentiousness removes the warfare. We don't have liberty to sin. We have liberty from sin. So if we want to remain steadfast, stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, I would say it starts with understanding the gospel that we've heard, which is why I insist on these regular visits to gospel fluency. If you know it, you can cling to it. If you don't know it, you're just constantly grasping at it, right? So you got to know it. So I pray for us, for, my, for myself, for my family, for you all, that your minds would be renewed, that you would be fixed on the truth of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that from that intellectual understanding would pour out, would flow out, walking in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. Bearing fruit, steadfast, persevering with patience and joy. Because the one who secured salvation gave up everything of himself in order to do it. He is worthy of us knowing him and obeying him. Amen. Let's pray.